we have a sign in our showroom that says, here's how we build custom furniture. Boom, boom, boom. Pick your wood, pick your design, sign off on your estimate, uh, you know, set your budget. Like we've talked about on the show already, set your budget. Um, and then it says, and if you're not happy, we will take it back and give you a refund. That's the voice of Dave Punkashar, owner of Goodwood Nashville. And I'm excited to talk with him right after this word from our sponsor. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Jobber. Jobber brings people and technology together by keeping jobs on track, customers happy, and your business organized. Jobber also just recently launched a new grant program, Boost by Jobber, a program providing $100,000 to 20 small local home service businesses across the U.S. and Canada. So whether you're just starting your business or you're a well-established business, you're invited to apply for a grant. Just visit BoostByJobber.com. That's BoostByJobber.com. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Dave Punkashar, owner of the Nashville, Tennessee-based furniture company, Goodwood Nashville. Dave has a lot going on. With his team of 12, he runs a custom furniture company, a custom flooring company, a furniture store, and a lumber slab reclaim wood business. Standing alone, each would be a full-time job, but together, well, looking at it from the outside, it looks like a steep mountain to climb. Follow along as we talk about how he grew his business, how he deals with clients, and how he can offer a no questions asked, 100% guarantee return policy on everything that comes out of his shop. But let's take a step back, a step back to the beginning to see where it all started. Well, I actually kind of got into it by accident. Um, so what happened was, um, I mean, I'll give you a little backstory that I had taken woodworking growing up, like back when I grew up, they made us take woodwork, wood shop in middle school. I uh, don't think we took it in high school, but then when I was at college, I had the opportunity to take some classes at the Appalachian Center for Crafts, which was just a phenomenal uh, resource that was linked to my university that was Tennessee Tech University. So I had a little background. I loved woodworking, did a little bit, dabbled in it. But the reason I say I got into it by accident was about 10 years ago, I bought a 110-year-old house and I was just trying to match these old, old floors and they were old growth poplar. Well, new poplar and old poplar do not look the same. So it got me into this world of old wood and everybody I dealt with trying to find old wood was not easy to work with. So I decided to start my own old wood company and I started selling old wood and barn wood and reclaimed wood out of my garage. And when people came to me for the wood, then they started just saying, well, can you just build me a table? And me being an optimist and not a realist would just say, sure. And I had no clue how to really build a table. It had been a long time since those college classes that the Appalachian Center for Crafts. So technically what I would do is I would say, sure, I'll build you the table. And I'd even set a price uh, by guessing. And then I'd call my good buddy who furniture maker and I say, Hey, you got to build me a table. <laughs> and he'd laugh. He'd say, well, what, you know, what are you talking about? I said, well, I need help. I just sold a table and I had a full-time job. And so you got to build it for me. And uh, I didn't tell him, I just asked him. And anyways, long story short, um, I started working with a lot of work, woodworkers locally who would build, build tables for my customers. 
Um, and then it just Goodwood grew in the lumber and in the furniture. And as we grew, I was able to get my own uh, full-time staff members who build furniture full-time. So we kind of subbed it out at first, independent contractors, and then grew to do it all in-house over the years. So that's how I got into furniture building. Your shop has has so much going on. You're you're building custom furniture in-house. You have a custom flooring side to your company. You also have a furniture store attached to your shop where you're selling your furniture as well as a lot of other furniture makers' uh, furniture. And you also have a slab and a salvage business. How do you how do you do all this? How did it progress to the point where you have all these different layers and how do you keep all the balls up in the air? <laughs> um, it's it's grown over time. And uh, the, the way I keep the balls in the air is over, over nearly 10 years, I have learned to go ahead and invest in really good people. And if anyone's li- listening to this show and you're not sure about hiring help, um, hire help. Don't just grab the neighbor or a family member because they're there and they're not, they have a 98.6 degree temperature. Um, hire good help and really pay for it. And we are able to do a myriad of different things because I've got an awesome team of people. Um, this is not the Dave Punkashar show. Goodwood Nashville is really its own entity and its own, it has just developed into its own um its own uh organic kind of ethos where it's great people and we do all this different thing all these different things and for me the way i'm wired ethan is i love doing different things i love that every day is different so for me the fact that one day we can be focused on making floors for a customer out of old barnwood and the next day we're doing a custom modern high-end reception desk for a for an office it's it just keeps every day different and every day is exciting um but to answer your question more concisely i've got a wood shop manager who manages the wood shop i've got an operations manager named tara she manages the whole business um office manager she manages all the hr stuff the scheduling the and then we have that we have our own yeah we have a lumber store Um, We're starting to tag that on Instagram as Goodwood Nashville Supply. So we're trying to grow that. And one day we may do a separate website. But for now, that's that's all under Goodwood Nashville. So people can shop. We we always wanted everything under one roof. So we're kind of like the Krispy Kreme model where you can see the guys making the donuts, so to speak. Like you can see the woodworkers. You can see finished products in our showroom. And then under our showroom in our building, we have a whole basement, about 7,000 square feet of just lumber so it's reclaimed it's hard to get it's two inch thick white oak that we couldn't find so we finally brought it in it's uh and then huge slabs 13 footers we've got a 22 foot slab which is hard to store and but we've just got I've, I've been able to hire people that have sort of taken ownership of those different areas and that's that's how we do all that it's almost like goodwood has four different companies and there's almost like somebody running each each area which because otherwise it just you know you want to give good customer service and otherwise you we would just be doing a, a poor job but i've got great people 
How are you finding these people? So I get what you're saying. You don't just want to hire your neighbor or your neighbor's yeah. neighbor. You want to find quality people who are the right person for the job. How are you going about finding these people that, that work so well for your company? Well, um, obviously there's trial and error. So some people we've hired have not worked out. And thankfully the people that don't work out, they, they have a way to work themselves out. Like they usually leave because they're not happy if they're not the right fit. Um, and, but the way we found our best candidates are um, definitely a lot of networking. I'm not finding people. I don't go on like Indeed or jobs.com or some like big website. Um, we've probably found a lot of our people actually through Instagram. And my thought on that is we've always been posting on Instagram and Facebook and you know, I've done that for almost nine years. It's mostly me. And I just always try to do like a post today. So we've built a, we've built a following that, you know, we, we have some engagement we've got a good number of followers and whatnot. But my thought is if people follow us on Instagram, they like what we do. And I want to hire people that already know us and already like what we do. I don't want to hire somebody who is like an office manager who has run a dental office. No, I want to hire someone who's capable, but who follows us and is like, wow, look at what they do. This is beautiful. Because if they get excited about what we do, we can, we can teach them where to work at Goodwood, but you can't teach that excitement where it's in the DNA of somebody where they're like, oh my gosh, I just, I just got my dream job. I get to work this place where every day we put out beautiful beautiful projects and a place you know you can be proud to work and and a great team so that's that's been the biggest thing so i've, I've used social media to cast the net so to speak um and then sometimes i just say you know if you know anybody let me know you know tag them and so sometimes people say oh my gosh you know they'll call their brother you've got to apply for this company like I watch them and they're, you know, they do great stuff. So that's been our, that's been our, uh, probably our most successful method. Now I have to take it back a little bit to a little earlier in the conversation when you said you were just starting out and somebody would ask you for a table and your price model would be just guessing at a price. I understand that, that that's one way to do it. And a lot of people starting out do that but you have a, a 12 person company. You've been doing this for a long time. I would be very surprised if you were just guessing at prices right now. Um, <laughs> um, that's it, fair. Yeah. It, it would be an interesting, as much. yeah, it yeah. would be, an, it would be an interesting way for you to run your company. And I'm sure we could have a whole conversation on how that's working out for you. But like you said, you are not, you are yeah. not guessing at prices now. How are you, pricing out pieces now in the custom furniture part of your company. Yeah, I'm happy to share that. So um, I will say, I think it's worth saying that the, the, the one of the first customers I ever sold a table to that I guessed the price, I was so low that they left and they looked at, the, they tell me this later, they looked at themselves, they go, can we trust this guy? His table's so cheap. Like, is this going to be quality? And I love that they told me that because it taught me that, you know, you don't always want to be the cheapest out there because people are not going to be sure that you're actually going to do a good job. So, um, but long story short, the way we price a lot of our furniture now, you know, I've talked to a lot of woodworkers and there's a lot of ways to do it. So there's three ways that I look at things. And then there's the, and one of those is the way we do most things, but 
Number one, um, I also, I sometimes look at things and go, what's out in the market? Like if someone wants a, a dining table, a big dining table, what does that cost? Like if I just want to go buy one somewhere, that's solid wood, you know, what's out there. So first you want to educate yourself about what's in the market. And I hate to say it, but sure, I'll look at restoration hardware and see what they do, see what they charge. But again, they're not building it in the U.S. and it's, we build hands down better quality. Um, and, but Another, I've heard other people say they take the material cost. So if you've got a thousand dollars of uh, material, they usually multiply it by four and that's either their labor cost or their all in cost. So thousand dollars material, oh, that's $4,000 table. I've heard that done. I don't know where the multiplying by four came from if that's just guys who've done it long enough. What we do is we've come up with an hourly rate for our high end or, or our heirloom woodworking I'm not talking about standing down a, you know, a piece of wood for somebody, but you know, for custom woodworking, we bill in Nashville, and I don't mind saying this, we bill $125 an hour. And that is a man an hour. And so that's $1000 a day. Now, a year ago when COVID hit and we had no jobs and everybody was holding their breath, look, we got creative. We like went in and put in like <laughs> privacy fences and I was about to send my crew to hang drywall. So this interview is done in a time where the demand is very high. So I want to say that very clearly. Um, right now, our demand is high. We have a good waiting list of customers. Um, we, we put out great quality and people are willing to wait. So what I do is I just, I simply do the math of, okay, it's going to be, you know, $800 of lumber or if they, if they want a $3,000 maple, hard maple, curly maple slab that I've got, and it's going to take four days of labor. Well, that's a $7,000 top to do my bids. I, uh, I actually line item. I try to line item the, the wood and the labor. And I, you know, I didn't do that for a long time, Ethan, but now I do it. And I like it because if people say to me, if they come back to me and say, can we do it for less money? I say, well, sure. Change something. The, the, the labor is not going to change unless you change the design or the size, right? Shrink the table. Or change the wood. You don't want the $3,000 maple slab? I've got no problem with that. You want to do $1,200 worth of maple uh, lumber? Cool. All right. We just change that number. So it's nicer for me to line item the, the estimates because then um, the conversation, if people do want to change it all, it's a lot easier rather than you say table, you know, four foot by eight foot table, $6,000. And they're like, uh, well, can we do it cheaper? If you don't line item that, I think it's a little harder to walk people through how you can change prices for people. So that's um, that's how I budget. That's how I estimate. And I also will add this because I think if this if your show is for furniture makers, you always want to qualify your buyers. So if someone says to you, can you make a custom table? Absolutely. Um, do you have an idea of what you're looking for? And I'll email them. Do you have an idea? Do you have a timeline? And do you have a budget? And a lot of people won't talk about their budget up front, but if you can get them to, or, or if you can reference, well, a lot of my tables are, you know, three to $6,000, depending on the style and the size, then you've immediately saved yourself a headache. If someone says, oh, I thought I could get a table from you for 400 bucks. 
because some people just don't know. They're not trying to be rude. They just have no idea what custom furniture costs. Um, or they'll send me a picture from like West Elm. Can you build me this? And I, I know it's from West Elm. Like the, the screenshot shows it's from West Elm or, or some furniture store like that. And I'll say, well, I can surely build that for you, but it's going to be a lot more than West Elm charges because I build it locally out of solid wood and they build it internationally out of fake wood. And, uh, and we laugh. So qualifying your customers is really important step. And if you're a woodworker and you work by yourself or you have just a small team, you don't want to spend a lot of time with people who aren't actually going to be customers. So that's a very important step. And I would recommend everybody trying to find their own way, their own, their own way that they're comfortable. Um, you know, talk money and talk timeline early on. And I think, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Talking money and talking timeline and talking about, what the finished piece is going to be is very important because people forget or they don't take into account that those initial emails are time when they could be doing something else. It could be billable hours and those initial conversations about design could be billable hours. When does your, right. when does your actual billable hours start? When do you mm -hmm. start charging the customer? That's a great question. So what I do is um, when we're talking big picture and, uh, you know, remember people can come to my showroom and, and say, oh, I want a table and they can actually pick the wood, the woods in the basement. We can talk design. So sometimes I'll talk pricing and all that, but they should have a good feel of the price. But, but to answer your question, when I charge the customers, um, so my initial conversation and my estimate or even an estimate range, that's free. And what I mean by a range, if someone says, well, you know, I kind of want a table that's this size and I'm not sure about the species and I'm not sure what kind of legs. I'm like, okay, well, you're probably talking, you know, let's say three to $5,000. Okay. There's no money that's changed hands. I'm not charging them yet. Then they say, okay, can I get a sketch? So, the sketch or when, and then when I talk timeline, I say, ma'am or sir, you're, we're eight to 12 weeks from date of deposit. And Ethan, I will say that there's a best practice that we've come up with that I would encourage everybody to do. If people come to your shop, what we've done is we've put names on a board. We have names outside our wood shop on a board and they're, they're in order. And they're in order of people who put down their money and who are up in the hopper or, or currently, if they're top of the list, they're being worked on right now. And I always try to show people that. And I say, these are people who've put down their 50% deposit. If you want us to build your thing, you're at eight to 12 weeks from deposit, you know, and sometimes I'll joke, don't call me in 10 weeks and put down a deposit and then expect it in two. I go, it's eight to 10 weeks from date of deposit. So um, to circle back and answer your question, when does money take, when does money change hands? Um, I give people a napkin sketch, what I call a napkin sketch or a hand sketch. Um, that's free as part of an estimate. If someone wants a rendering, a sketch up or whatnot, then I'm sending a formal estimate, getting approval and getting a formal invoice. And I'm going to get 50% down before I start, um, doing a Google SketchUp or any kind of drawings and we have the ability to do it. We're very slow. So I've even looked out for designers who do it all the time to see if I can hire them to do designs because they, they do it very a uh, lot quicker than we do. So that's when I don't 
I do the free estimates. I'll go out to somebody's house again, after I've qualified them as a buyer. Um, I try to bring everybody to my showroom before I go to their house. Cause I think it just shows that they're interested and they can get a feel for our work. Um, but I don't do renderings and sketches. I don't do professional drawings and things uh, for free without any money trading hands. You brought up two really important things that I, I wanna jump into. Number one is the customer experience and not only bringing people to the showroom and seeing the work that's being done and so they're invested not only in their own project but other projects that are going on they're invested into the whole shop and some people mm -hmm. don't have showrooms some people don't even have shops that they want clients to visit but just incorporating the client into the build is very very important to that and i really do like the idea of you having your clients names on a board that people can come in and see where they are on the list instead of just a date on a calendar somewhere that that's pretty great i like that a lot the second one is also the outsourcing of things if you don't feel like you your shop can run it or you don't feel like you can run it properly sending it out to a designer sending it out to somebody who can do it faster and yes you're charging that little extra money for it but it's saving you money in the long run because you're not taking somebody who isn't as good as that and and putting them on that and spending twice as long as somebody else so i i like That's exactly I, right yep i yeah. i I definitely like those two points. Well, my whole thing is my woodworkers are really great at building furniture. But if I pull them out of the wood shop for four hours to do a design, then I've just, that's $600 of uh, what we call billable hours. It just didn't just happen. And I'm not charging $600 for, for the design, probably for the drawing. Do you know what I mean? So I'm a big fan of outsourcing, whether it's you know finishing booth, if you don't have your own spray booth, we found guys who can spray for us. Um, the metal guys, we do outsource a lot of our metal work for table legs just because sparks and lumber stores make me nervous. And so we've never really done heavy investment in metal work. Um, but I've got great metal guys who help me. And then I will say too, don't always have just one guy. <laughs> so you don't always want to have one guy because sometimes they don't return your calls or they'll get a big order and they can't help you. So um, as far as outsourcing goes, but um, you know, the, the thing about the job board that you mentioned, that's been really helpful is before we did that, people, you tell them, Oh, you're eight, we're eight weeks out. Okay. They'd call me the next week. How's the table coming? They well, man, we haven't started your table. I, in eight weeks, I build your table. I go, I got 20 projects ahead of yours. And so now with the job board, they understand that. So they don't ask me that anymore. So that's been helpful. A lot of people feel like they have to reinvent the wheel when they're starting their own company where they have to not only have to make the, the wooden furniture, but they have to make the metal parts. They have to do the finishing. They have to do the book work. And some people are great at that. And some people just have the business and the building side down and they can do it. But some people, it's not for them. And that's where outsourcing really, really works for a company. You are very upfront with your customers about pricing and, and line items and things like that. But when it comes to contracts and contracts between 
customers and a furniture company, especially one like you, where it's a lot of solid wood, which is natural and has movements and things like that. How do you deal with your contracts? And do you have anything in them that really stands out that you could recommend people putting in for their contracts as well? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, we're actually just revising our contract now for custom installs and custom woodworking. Um, but I was told once in a business training session that if you don't have a contract that's signed and your customer doesn't pay, you don't have a leg to stand on. You don't even have a court case. So um, I realized, wow, I don't, I don't do contracts at all. So the only thing I can say that we've done well, we, our intention is to have a very simple contract. And I will back up. We have a sign in our showroom that says, here's how we build custom furniture. Boom, boom, boom. Pick your wood, pick your design, sign off on your estimate, uh, you know, set your budget. Like we've talked about on the show already, set your budget. Um, and then it says, and if you're not happy, we will take it back and give you a refund because at Goodwood, I don't want anyone out there who's not happy with their custom work. Wow. So I'll either change it, fix it to make them happy. Um, if someone's just a complainer, I'll say, well, ma'am, I'm happy to take this back and give you a refund. And then you really can, I hate to say it, but you can call their bluff. And they're like, you know what? It's fine. They just had a bad day and they were taking it out on you. So first and foremost, I have a hundred percent satisfaction guarantee. I don't promote it well. I should promote it more, but there's nobody in Nashville that's bought something for me that I've known they're unhappy and I haven't done anything to change that. So A, there's that. B, our contract is we we pay to use uh, DocuSign. Um, it's obviously, most of you know it, but DocuSign is an online signing platform because people, we do it on, we do so much on email, like pricing and whatnot. So we've put our simple contract into DocuSign and you can click the button that says like, remind them every day to sign if, until they do. And our contract is very simple. And it basically says, we'll do our part, which is build your piece. You do your part, which is pay us when we're done and pay us within this amount of time. And if you don't, please pay our court costs if we have to take you to court to recover our payment. And so we've tried really hard to do a very simple contract, um, kind of a one pager that if we ever do have to go to court, you know, we're covered. Um, the only thing I would encourage people to do is if you're shipping something or if you're delivering something, the thing I think we've learned the hard way over the years is have somebody sign a piece of paper that says they're, they approve and receive this piece of furniture. Like, I don't care if it's a construction manager, if it's a cousin, if it's a neighbor, have them sign that says this piece of furniture is approved and received and then take a lot of pictures, walk around your table, take a video because what you don't want to do is somebody damage your piece and then you have no proof that they did it. So I know that's uh, gets into, that's not exactly answering your contract question, but those are the places you can get caught up with problems is somebody hurting it on a job site. Maybe you build a big countertop and the electrician puts all his tools on it and then scratches it. Well, if you have pictures of it in place, then you're good. You're at least protected. You'll probably still have to go fix it, but um, make your contract simple. But also the biggest thing is just have a contract and make sure you do the business side. Like if you're going to run a business, you got to run the business. you got to do it. It doesn't have to be complicated, but 
pay a lawyer, whatever they want. Even if it's a hundred bucks, say, would you help me make a simple contract for furniture? So um, I don't know if that's any, anything specific that's helpful, but I do like the DocuSign process and making sure that we do that. I have to say that is, that is bold of you to have a hundred percent money back guarantee. Uh, it, it, it is, it is a rare thing and not something that I hear a lot of furniture makers say. And, uh, I'll, I'll take a step back and say that a lot of furniture makers or, or all furniture makers should stand behind their work and they should build what they think and what the client thinks is the finished piece of furniture, but that 100% buyback or 100% guarantee is bold. How has that worked for you? And are you doing that mostly because you want your clients to think of you as a good company? Or do you just feel like everything you put out is going to be up to customer satisfaction, even if on the last day they decide they wanted to change the color or something like that, because that, that happens. You, you have, yeah. that's why people have contracts in place because they right. say no changes once money is put down and then clients will right. always say, Oh, but I'd rather this. So how do you yeah. deal with that? That's a great question. So I know it's a bold move. Um, but my intention there is, is twofold. Number one, it's a vote of confidence in the wood shop that they're going to put out quality material and quality, quality work that we are, you know, we stand behind it. And number two, um, one of our core values at Goodwood is actually the word over communicate. And maybe that's two words, but, um, and so we try to over communicate, meaning, um, if someone wants to stain quarter sawn white Oak, a dark Brown, I'm like, Hey, do you remember, do you know that that makes these like flex that catch the light that change, like look real different and make sure you come in or, we use air dried walnut slabs that has a lot of sap wood, the white, the white sap wood and the, and the, you know, the, the contrast. And if we're into a bunch of wood for a customer, we say, Hey, are, are you, are you aware that you're going to have some really, we think it's cool. We want to make sure you think it's cool before we glue this sucker up. So we'll take extra steps during the process. If we think there's an issue or could be like that, like sap wood, um, if, cause we, we do clear coats on so much of our furniture, unless people, you know, twist our arm to put stain on, on our, on our pretty lumber. Um, so we try to over communicate to avoid a lot of that. Now, if someone, if we have a contract and it says stains an additional X and we haven't sealed anything yet and they say, Oh, now I want to stain. Okay. So the key is, you know, you want to make samples so they can select you can bring people in during the process. It does slow it up, especially if you're ready to stain and they can't get to you for a week because they're on vacation. Um, but we feel like if we communicate well during the whole process, they should be 100% not only satisfied, but we want them to be like floored. Like, oh my gosh, my table just got here from Goodwood, Nashville. They're going to post it. They're going to tell their friends. We want them to have that kind of experience. And if they're not, then I want to know about it. You're running a very successful company. You have a lot of employees. You have a long waiting list. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way that you could share with somebody who's 
deciding to start being a furniture maker. They're deciding to open up a furniture business on their own or people who are already in the mix and they have been doing this for a while and want to take their company to the next step. Well, I've got uh, the two pieces of advice that I got when I wanted to start Goodwood was keep your day job as long as possible. And I did that because I didn't need to put any money into the business. I would buy a little wood, sell a little wood, buy a little more, sell a little more. And it was a hobby business. And I loved that I had no pressure on myself to grow it. I didn't have to make a sale to feed my family. So that was the great way to start the company. Um, the second thing was my same, the same friend of mine that gave me this advice said, cash is king. Save your cash. Don't go out and buy fancy trucks and fancy shirts and fancy hats. But he said, you know, keep your cash. You're going to really need it. So those are two big, big things. Um, the other thing to answer your question is about as far as people going out on their own, um, I would say don't be afraid to fire people. If someone's not a good fit or if you're having angst, if you go home every night and you talk to your, your significant other about how frustrating so-and-so is to work with, if that's all the time, they should not be working for you. It's that simple. And I don't care if they're related to you or not, but business, it's hard enough. So find good, positive people. Um, and then uh, I, I'm a big believer in growing slow, you know, buying machines you can afford. Uh, paying cash when you can, like buy an old truck, that's fine. And then, you know, over the years, you can buy a better truck. Um, so there's how to manage your money. And I'll say lastly, if a customer is nickel and diming you on the estimating when you first start, or if they're, they get upset, or you feel like there's a lot of tension, 100% of the time, this is going to be a bad transaction. 100% of the time. I will give you a 100% chance of rain with that customer. So I want you to know if you're listening to this, if you're talking to a customer and they start questioning every little detail right at the beginning, you can tell they don't trust you at all. Um, save yourself the headache and try not to work for that customer. So they can go somewhere else. Wise words. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I really do appreciate your time and you sharing your keys to success in furniture making and dealing with customers. Thanks, Ethan. It's so great to talk to you. And I love that you're doing a show for woodworkers and furniture makers. And, and uh, it's just awesome. So thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be on your show. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for being on it. See you, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at TheBuildWithEthan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.